Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and I'm joined as usual by my very good friends, Kia Milburn. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And on today's Microdose, we are talking about aliens on screen. So, Kia, this was your suggestion. Tell us why we're talking about this today. Well, the real reason is I just enjoy these lots of sort of episodes where I get an excuse to watch lots of um, uh, TV and films. But as we said on the main episode we did on UFOs, that aliens and UFOs have been this persistent theme in fiction, and particularly in like films and movies. And so with all of these things, a bit like when we talked about horror films and horror fiction, etc., it's kind of interesting to sort of talk about them. I think we're going to talk about films in chronological order to some degree today to think about what the aliens uh, are representing, really, what role they play in, in people's imaginaries to some degree, how do they interrelate with the anxieties and concerns of their time. That sort of analysis of what's going on with aliens, I think, is interesting to me. And we could talk about aliens in written fiction, and perhaps we will touch on that, but you know what you've got to put a limit around this. So I think aliens in films is a, is a good way to do it. So yeah, that's why I think we're doing this episode. That's great. Okay. Before we get into this episode, we should mention that you can go even weirder and leftier by subscribing to our newsletter, which we now will be sending out after every new trip. So no more than once a month with bonus content and updates from the ACFM crew. To sign up, go to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. And for more music and less chat, follow the ever expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM. Also, please do leave us five-star reviews on whatever platform you listen on. They do a great help to push us up the algorithm of podcast success. And to support us to keep bringing you even more from the ACFM cosmos, please support our hosts, Navara Media, for as little as £1 a month by going to navara.media forward slash support. And with that, Let's get into it. Aliens on screen. Kia, what are we starting with? I think we should start with aliens not on screen. <laughs> um, we should start with War of the Worlds, I think. And so with that, with War of the Worlds, we'd probably be talking about H.G. Wells' novel from 1898. Perhaps we'd be talking about Orson Welles' radio play of War of the Worlds from 1938, which, talk, which caused a big shock and scandal. Um, and then there's been a couple of films, one in 1953 and one in 2005 starring Tom Cruise, if, if you've ever viewed to have seen that. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. So I don't know if you lot are uh, familiar with any or all of those cultural items. Literally have no idea. This is not my genre, as, as, as we know. We'll get to a few that are contemporary that I've heard of, but, but please, go on. Well, I've read War of the Worlds, the book, and, I, and of course I'm familiar with the uh, classic, uh, the, the album. 
Oh, yeah, from the I missed that the most important cultural <laughs> artifact. <laughs> There's like a concept album, a musical version of it. What, album called Wolf of the Wolves. It's a very hugely popular album. It was really, you know, sold loads of copies. Sort of prog rock album by Jeff Wayne. Jeff Wayne, in keeping with a tradition that seems to have developed here, I think you should give us a couple of choruses of <laughs> <laughs> The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, they said, but still they come. <laughs> Superb. Just, just to say before you guys get into that one, what would be really great to be able, so that we're able to put together this thesis that, that Keir introduced of like, what do aliens represent? And, you know, aliens from beyond and aliens from within. What would be great is that you, if you could describe to our listeners and also to me, who's not aware of many of these films, what the aliens are, look like or what the aliens are represented like on, on the screen, that would be very helpful. Well, the aliens in The War of the Worlds um, are not described, are they? They're not seen. Interesting. So the way we encounter the aliens in the story is that these sorts of, um, I suppose they're shells or something like that, which are fired from Mars land and then these big tripod devices get out of them or they have these heat rays and gases poison gas and these sorts of things but i think right at the end oh yeah they have the horrible tentacles don't yeah they? one of them crawls a dying alien crawls out of one of these things and so like the story is you know that it, it that the, these martians come down they've got this fantastically advanced technology and machinery and, and weapons etc many of them like you know sort of on the like, like they, they they deploy this poison gas, et cetera, which is on the horizon for World War One, et cetera, these sorts of things. It comes down just outside London, I think, isn't it? Where did it come down? I can't remember. Somewhere in the home county. Somewhere in the home county. Of course yeah. it does. Yeah, course <laughs> yeah, it yeah. does. Anyway, the heart of empire. So, they were, so um, Wells is right in this, you know, at the peak of the British Empire, 1898, et cetera. And that, like, you know, the British army gathers and, like, fires its cannon at, and has no effect at all. In the end, the only thing that brings down the Martians are the diseases, basically, the bacteria, the most primitive form of life that they, they have no resistance to. It is explicitly a novel about the fear of, or the, the colonial guilt, you'd put it that way, basically. The basic thesis of the whole book is, you know, what if someone came who was techn more technologically advanced than us and treated us the way that we treat the colonials? as H.G. Wells puts it. And you can even see that, like, the dying of disease, etc., that's exactly how imperialists brought down in Africa. You know, it was malaria who was wiping out these children of the home counties who'd go off to go make their fortune there. So just to be clear, it's like the threat here is if, if there was another external extraterrestrial being who did to us what we did to people on Earth, rather than what if people on Earth that we colonized came back at us? Because that was going to be, I'm trying to test out a thesis that I have here. Yeah, I, well, I think that there's also, it's also a time when there's paranoia about invasion from from Germany and these sorts of right. things. What if the Germans invaded? But like H.G. Wells is absolutely, like, he's absolutely clear, you know. In fact, he talks about it as the Tasmanians, you know, what if what if somebody did to us what we did to, ta to the Tasmanians, you know, we a war of extermination that cleared the whole island wiped out the population in 50 years etc what if they did that to us so there's that and then very famously Orson Welles stages a radio play where he a radio play of War of the Worlds sort of transported to California isn't it I think and um, 
uh, people who miss the announcement that it's a radio play like listen in and think it's the news basically and this is huge mass panic or at least that's the that's the story that's given also Wells becomes very famous because of this uh, this radio play and it goes on he's forced to apologize for it etc and all these sorts of things Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. And then the first film of, of War of the Wills is set is from 1953, and that also is moved to the US. And it's the same story, apart from in the US, the Americans, they use an atom bomb, an A-bomb on the aliens, and that also has no effect. Uh, so they're sort of updating the, the inadequacy of current technology in the face of, you know, a technologically superior alien species right so as far as you guys know is this the first depiction on screen of like jeremy was saying like tentacled type aliens like that sort of vision of what an alien is i don't know the tentacle description comes from the book comes from the end of the book and then but but it's a feature of the book and of the film versions that that you that the alien the actual appearance of the aliens is mysterious, like at least until right at the end, that you just see the mechanical vehicles that they inhabit, these, you know, strange sort of moving mechanical tripods that just have these sort of, you know, spherical or sort of egg shaped like pods on top. And you it's only at the end you see that. So but I think that description of the alien as tentacled, I'm sure Wells's description of the tentacled alien in the book is the first time that description of an alien is given and of course it's massively influential it influences later descriptions of horrific aliens it influences lovecraft's description of the the elder god cthulhu it, it you know it's still being riffed on in the the depictions of the aliens in the simpsons so so it's very influential but i don't know that someone didn't make a, a film a silent film or something that had imaginary aliens with tentacles before the first film version of War of the Worlds, but they didn't that I know of. I mean, the only other thing to say about the, the novel is that the novel contains a sort of element of, like, terraforming, we'd call it now, where this, this red weed is being grown on Earth, and which is sort of changing the atmosphere, so that the atmosphere is being changed to so it could um, better suit the Martians, basically. That's not in the 1953 film, but it is in the 2005 film. The next film I want to talk about is actually from 1951, so it comes before the first film we talked about then, which is The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a, I think it's a really interesting film. It's one of the, well, one of the rare films from this period anyway, which has perhaps a liberal, not quite a leftist, but certainly a liberal sort of sensibility. Just after that, you're getting into the real paranoia films, such as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, we'll talk about a bit later. The aliens are actually potentially beneficial, basically. It's an example of 
of what you might call the zoo hypothesis. So that's like one way in which you try to answer this thing of Fermi's paradox, which Jeremy's convinced doesn't is a false paradox, <laughs> which is this idea if there's so many stars and so many planets out there, aliens must exist. So why have they not contacted us? Why have you know why can we not detect them anyway? Because they can't, because you can't, it's simple. <laughs> it is simple. Like, there you go. Unfortunately, simple. that is not great for um, <laughs> <laughs> for uh, fiction, etc., and so one of the one of the answers might be, which is portrayed in this film, is that the, it's a zoo hypothesis. People, are, aliens, are, are aware of us, but they're not contacting us, and they're sort of protecting us from from interference by other species, etc. Uh, and they'll only contact us once we we cross a certain threshold of of grooviness. Yeah, <laughs> well, talking about grooviness, We're not cool enough for the aliens. <laughs> no, no, or or when we pose an existential threat yeah, to ourselves. And, and this is this is. Yeah, yeah, no, you go on, go on, Jim. Well, I would say that's the thesis of this film, isn't it? That they contact us because they have to, otherwise we're going to pose a threat either to ourselves or other species. Yeah, so this is like a post-nuclear energy, nuclear bomb film, 1951. So just six years after the first atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, etc. And so they're, they're basically what happens is this flying, classic flying saucer-looking flying saucer comes and lands in, in America, Washington, I think. An alien who looks very much like a human being gets out called Klaatu, and it's accompanied by a robot, this very big robot called Gort. Come out of the source, it's surrounded by soldiers, one of whom mistakenly fires and injures Klaatu. Um, and he's basically there in order to demand that, to, to, to that the world leaders gather so he can speak to them and, and give them a message, which is basically, we've worked out that you've discovered atomic energy soon you'll be powering your spaceships with atomic energy and then you'll be a threat to other species so therefore you need to stop the course you're on join with us in a peaceful universal existence etc the problem is the world is split between you know two blocks the soviet union and the free world led by america Uh, and so they won't gather together they're both suspicious of each other so as an example of their of his power cloudy gets go to stop the earth to stop all all electricity working everywhere on earth apart from i think planes don't crash perhaps hospitals are still allowed to function these sorts of things basically that's the idea is that they've come down to sort of to prevent mankind going on a warlike existence there's a sort of subplot where clato escapes and lives amongst humans in disguise for a while he gets to be friends with this woman and he says, if I get injured or die, you've got to go to Gort and say these words, Klaatu, Barada, Niktu, um, and that, uh, otherwise he'll destroy the world, basically. <laughs> Obviously, the soldiers kill him, right? And she manages <laughs> to get to, to, to Gort and says, Klaatu, Barada, Niktu, which seems to mean, um, don't blow up the world. I've died. Go and get me and revive me and bring me back to life, which is what God does. And then God is resurrected. He's basically a Christ-like figure, isn't he? Basically, he's come back to yeah. save mankind. He dies and, and gets resurrected to deliver his good news, basically. The latter part of that is, is, is incredibly rude in Arabic. So I'll leave that for Arabic speakers to enjoy really? that. <laughs> it's an it's incredibly famous line, actually. Okay, well, I'm sure a lot of Arabic speakers are laughing at that one. <laughs> it's very uh, it's a very low budget film. I mean, it's like it's only a science fiction film, really, in terms of its plot. And there's a there's a few really simple effects and some quite cool electronic sound. But it's one of those films that, like, it almost could have been done as a stage play. Yeah. But it is also very high concept and really interesting. If anything should happen to me, 
You must go to court. You must say these words. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Please repeat that. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. I, I mean, the controversy around it at the time was that it didn't just say the Americans were the good guys. The Americans and the Soviets were both on the wrong path and they had to be brought together by the by the aliens who were beneficial. We should say, are we doing themes here or are we doing epic spoilers as Kier usually likes to do? Ah, fuck, we should definitely do a spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> because we're about to spoil every single alien film ever for everyone. So I've just given away the complete plot. Oh, the whole of the day the earth stood still. That's like We need to have a spoiler klaxon, a spoiler alien sounding klaxon. We're not going to be trying very hard to avoid spoilers. So Consider yourselves warned. All right, let's move on. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Well, this is a classic piece of Cold War paranoia. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Also a film that really doesn't revolve around any sort of effects. So its science fictionness is baked into the plot rather than, than it having any sort of whiz bang, you know, pseudo futurist imagery. And the idea is basically there's an alien invasion that takes the form of aliens being able to either take over people's bodies or create or kidnap people and create precise copies of them. Let me give it a properly good spoiling. <laughs> so this is the, the, there's two versions. One of the 1956 version we're talking about. There's one in 1978 as well with Donald Sutherland. And like the story here is like there are alien spores fall to Earth, and they grow into like pods, and they can sort of like clone people in the pods. You get pod people. Um, so if somebody's sleeping near to one of these pods, that that it takes on its form and then eventually it takes on its memories and it, and these sorts of characteristics, everything apart from it doesn't have emotions basically, and eventually comes to replace this person. And so the pod people are sort of like really rationalist; they don't have any emotions; they're all blank, etc. And they they're in some sort of conspiracy where they want to spread pod people all around the world. That's the sort of conceit of of the film, basically. Yeah, it's the idea of a stealth invasion. Mm. Which, which is really scary, is the idea of, a, of an invasion that doesn't take the form of a full frontal military assault like the Martians, but is somehow step by step, person by person, replacing the actually existing population with a completely different one in ways which is sort of difficult to detect and difficult to stop. And you never know whether somebody you're talking to is actually one of them or allied with them, or if they are actually going to be on your side. Is that just a metaphor for immigration? Well, no, it's supposed to be a metaphor for communism, for the idea that right. the communists were gradually taking over the state and society. But I think it is also, I think it is... It's the other, isn't it? Some form of the other. It is the other, and it does express a kind of affect of paranoia in a really mechanically brilliant way, I think, that that plot device and i think paranoia isn't limited just to the experience of the cold war on either side to some extent it's built into modern experience it is really scary actually i think the only version i've seen to be honest is neither of those it was a tv miniseries version from the 80s i think or the 70s but it's really scary it's a very scary 
plot device, I think. Like the 1978 version, it can be read a little bit more like what happens when community turns against an individual. These couple of people are trying to escape. They're being chased. They're trying to pretend that they are pod people, etc., and all this sort of stuff. And like the famous scene in the 1978 version is when Donald Sutherland, who's been one of the people who, with a woman, have been trying to escape from these people, turns and makes this sound, which is the sound of the aliens make when they detect a non-alien. The 1956 version is like, it's, it, people sort of read it either as a critique of of communism, the idea that, you know, basically people get taken over by like this, this rationalist collectivist sort of order, etc. And, you know, the people that you thought you knew, all of a sudden they're acting very differently. They've been... They're dialectical materialists. They're because, yes, they <laughs> finally understood the world. You can read it that way. And other people read it as a, as a critique of, of McCarthyism, basically, the sort of Cold War witch hunts which had just ended a couple of years before that and like you know so that sort of like totalitarianism the conformism that's brought about by that it's hard to know which one's which but partly because the director don siegel claims to be a liberal although he also went on to make dirty harry which is like the one of the most outrageously anti-countercultural and reactionary films of the 1970s yeah but i think it is i think it is just sort of liberal it's it's liberal paranoia which can be directed fairly at, at either side of the cold war at that moment in yeah. history a- anti-totalitarianism defense of the individual sort of idea perhaps yeah it's interesting to think that plot trope also gets used in in vampire movies that's the plot of like salem's lot for example the vampires gradually take over like e- each member of this community and absorb them it's the slow creep, isn't it? That's a different kind of horror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is pretty much incidental that they're extraterrestrial. I mean, the, the fact of their extraterrestriality. Extra the testicle, what? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the fact of them being extraterrestrial. <laughs> it's, inter- it's interesting to think about this. Like, to what extent is it completely incidental to these plots? And that is one in which it is completely incidental. They could just be some genetically created freaks. They could just be weird people. I mean, there's also this thing about cults, isn't there? I always think people refer to Invasion of the Body Snatchers when they talk about the experience of cult dynamics and people becoming members of cults and cults spreading their power, like Scientology or something. It's an interesting question, actually, because with a lot of these, it's like, One reading of this is you're trying to account for sort of like social, perhaps psychological phenomena by saying it's something which is alien, comes from the outside, doesn't emerge from their body politic naturally. Do you know what I mean? I suppose that's why it would be an alien rather than something else. I'm not sure. Famously with the 1956 film as well, the original film just ended with this one guy escaping from the village, standing on the highway with like trucks with pod people on them going all over the planet earth shouting uh, looking straight at the camera going you're next you're next and that was too bleak an ending so they the studio insisted on putting a, an ending where one of the trucks crashes and it's all done in retrospect basically and and it, you know everything's fine in the end the, the conspiracy's been worked out and that is that 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 thing of the paranoid person is the one who actually even though we think he's suffering from all of the characteristics of paranoid schizophrenia he's the one who actually knows what's going on in his is revealed, which is a bit of a trope in, in right-wing culture, I think, but um, perhaps we return to that. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so that's uh, 1956-1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I now wanted to talk about a set of films which run from, in fact, films and TV series, which run from 1955 up to 1971, featuring the character Bernard Quatermass, which is a character invented by Nigel Neal, who's a real central figure in the weirdness of British TV in the post-war period, up until the 1970s, perhaps into the 1980s, basically. And I wanted to talk about them all together because they fit into a sort of cycle, if you know what I mean, where the aliens change quite substantially for all of this, what they're representing, how we relate to them, etc. The series is this, Quatermass Experiment, 1958-1955, Quatermass 2, 1957, Quatermass and the Pit, 1967, Quatermass, sometimes called uh, the Quatermass Conclusion from 1979. All of them are TV series, mostly on the BBC, which then Hammer, the production com- film production company Hammer, then takes and makes a film version of. Um, have I reviewed you? I haven't watched any of these. Of course not. No, I, I'm ashamed to say I'm, I've been aware of Quatermass since I was a little kid and I've never got around to watching any of them. So they're a big uh, gap in my education. Yeah, I, I'm, I have to say I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm just not into it. Well, shame or not, that was exactly the news I was looking for. <laughs> Settle back, everyone, for a 40-minute Milburn monologue. <laughs> Does it come with a jingle? Can we make Jeremy sing something alongside it, is my question. I wish I could think of a... I wish they'd done a Quatermass album in the mid-1970s, but alas, they didn't. <laughs> no. Um, basically, Quater... The, the Quatermass Experiment, it's, it's a TV series. I think it, that's in 1955. It might be a couple of years earlier, actually. And, it, and basically, it sort of invents sci-fi on TV, basically. It's on the BBC. It's only one channel. Uh, BBC One is the only channel in the UK. It sort of invents sci-fi. It certainly invents sort of like sci-fi horror sort of series. It's like a limited series sort of like six episodes or something like that. So not quite a Doctor Who sort of sort of thing and like the basic formula for all of the Quatermass series and films is that there's some sort of alien incursion into the earth which threatens to destroy the earth and then Quatermass who was a scientist Bernard said Quatermass forms some sort of team together and they defeat the the aliens like the original one is about a rocket ship goes into the earth can carry into three astronauts it returns there's only one astronaut on the ship left and he's in shock he can't talk about it but he seems okay apart from that. And then we sort of like, we discover, in fact, he seems to have been infected with some sort of alien presence, which means he can absorb other people and other things. He seems to have absorbed the other two uh, the other two astronauts. The only thing that's left are like spacesuits. He's in hospital. He bumps into a cactus and infamously like starts to absorb the cactus. His hand t- turns into a cactus sort of shape which is a bit that I'd seen and was like horrified with when I was a kid. And he's gradually turning into an alien plant. He, he escapes from the hospital and he's, we've got to track him down. Quatermass realises that he's going to turn into an alien and release spores and destroy the earth. And then eventually he's tracked down to Westminster Abbey where they, just a couple of years before the, the Queen had been coronated. So everybody knew what Westminster Abbey looked like inside. And by this time, he's transformed into this, like, shapeless mass with, like... Actually, I think he's got tentacle-like things going on and, like, big bulbous spores. And he's part animal, part, part plant, etc., etc. Quatermass electrocutes him and kills him, sort of thing. And so there you've got, like, the aliens are out in space, basically. You can't escape it. Maggie, look! 
Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. Then a couple of years later, you have Quatermass 2, which is sort of set around a large chemical plant out, out in the countryside somewhere. And this is a sort of invasion of the body snatchers type thing. Meteorites are landing around this chemical site. When they land, they release this gas, which sort of like infects people, takes them over, mind controls them. Mind-controlled aliens have started to infiltrate the government, all these sorts of things, basically. And they're trying to tr- terraform the Earth so that these aliens can exist in it, etc. It gets interesting, though, this Quatermass series. So that's like the aliens are on Earth, basically. They've landed on Earth. The interesting one is like Quatermass in the Pit, which is from the film is from 1967. And that is one where Nigel Neal's sort of obsessions, he has these obsessions with stuff, keeps going over these tropes, et cetera, et cetera. In the Quatermass in the Pit, basically some workers are extending Hobbs End Tube Station, which becomes important later on. They find this odd-looking skull. It's dated to five million years ago. They they then come across this this cylinder, metal cylinder, which they think is a bomb from the Second World War. But when they get inside, they find it's some sort of alien spaceship and there's a, a, metal, there's a similar odd-looking skull in there. So they think that this ship must be five million years old, etc., etc. Quatermass and, and his, his associates start doing some sort of like M.R. James type investigating the, the archives. And they discover that there's been that, like repeated hauntings around Hobbs End Going back years and years and years and years. And this is I, a famous story because I know all this yeah, story, even though yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it. So it's called Hobbs End, and Hob is an old word for the devil, etc. And so, like, this is part of like this. One of the things that Nigel Lee's really interested in is this idea of trying to think about paranormal activity through sort of scientific explanations or pseudoscientific, we'd say, perhaps. And so, one of the one of the other famous films that he's associated with is the Stone Tapes, and. It's, that's this idea that like traumatic experiences can be sort of recorded in stone, basically. And then when we see ghosts, they're the like, replaying of these traumatic experiences, etc. So the stone tapes, as in recording tape, tape recorders, etc. And so it's a bit like that. He rehearses this idea first at, in Quatermass in the pit. But as, as the story goes on, they basically work out that that the aliens from had come from Mars, basically. Mars had been dying. They come from Mars and they'd try to preserve their species as best as they can by altering the sort of humanoids who were in existence then by increasing their brain power, etc. Basically, and, and like trying to produce us, not in their own image, but like to, to reflect themselves, etc. And so it's got this famous line that we are the Martians, basically. We are the Martians now. You know, first of all, it's Martians are out in space, then they're landed on Earth. Now we are the Martians if you go back far enough in fact we still carry these inheritances from them they then work out that mars had been destroyed in like racial purges where and these huge battles emerged because the aliens were trying to purge any sort of mutations out of the hive etc and that's what destroyed the martians and that's one of the things that they've passed on to us and in fact there's a big outbreak of purging mutations uh, that happens in hobbs end where everyone starts attacking each other etc and then eventually Quatermass sort of saves the day. Once again, it's this, this sort of like, what's going on? Is it just trying to to account for things such as like the Second World War, which had just gone on, the Nazis, etc. You know, people often talk about them as like atavistic urges and all these sorts of stuff. But, but it's this idea that you want to try to account for social and psychological 
phenomena as though there is the influence of like alien influences or perhaps alien influences buried, buried in our deep past, basically. Then finally, on my monologue, there's um, this very strange TV series, which is also a film called Quatermass Conclusion, the film's called. We'll call it that from 1979. And it's a very, very strange film. I think I've talked about it in one of the shows before, actually. It's this... Nigel Nina's an old man at this point in 1979, and it's his looking at the counterculture, basically, from the outside, or, or the changes that are taking place through youth culture. The story is the country has sort of broken down because there's been an oil crisis. The cities are dominated by gangs, one of which is called the Blue Brigades, who are fighting the Barders. So that's Barder-Meinhof Group and Red Brigade, sort of. And so the, the cities are in chaos. The, the, all around the countryside, these groups of, like, Sido hippies called the Planet People are wandering around singing, lay, 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 and, like, waving these pendulums, etc., etc. And they want to go to a different planet. They think they're going to be transported to a different planet because because this one's been destroyed, etc. It's this really weird sort of like setup where old people are still rational, but young people have just been caught up in their passions, basically. It's a great line where one of the planet people says to Quatermass, the scientist, stop trying to know things, <laughs> which is a fantastic line. Eventually, Quatermass works out that this upsurge of like irrationality and violence amongst the young is like this it's something that's happened over and over again in human history, but with like very, very long periods between them. What happens is that some alien force is making pe young people irrational, making them want to gather together in large numbers in like pop concerts, etc. Eventually, people gather around stone circles. They wanted to film it at Stonehenge, didn't get the permission, but they gather around stone circles. So it's like this is like a a premonition of like the you know, Stonehenge free festivals is going to happen, <laughs> going to grow into such a huge thing, you know, a few years later, etc. Young people gather in these stone circles and then this beam of light comes down and like harvests them basically for some reason. And in fact, the stone circles have been built by our ancestors as perhaps as some sort of memorial, perhaps as some sort of warning about like this harvesting of events that have happened in the past, basically. And like, so one reading of the whole of that and like the Quatermass and the Pit, etc., this one in particular, is this idea of social psychological phenomena. They're represented as being the result of some sort of alien force. One way you could read that is this is just an old man who is looking at this process of change that's happened in the 1970s and doesn't understand it. A bit like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or some people have been overwhelmed by things. Do you know what I mean? The other reading of that is when you have big events or when you have like psychological crises they can be experienced by something as though we're being overwhelmed by something much bigger than ourselves that's how people talk about events you know in a Baduian or probably even a Deleuzean sense of like this process of change which is much bigger than us and all this sort of stuff yeah so there's something really interesting there about like you know <laughs> is this just a reactionary sort of trope or can you read it in a different way in which you're trying to understand these sorts of things which are influencing our agency and our uh, intentions etc in a way that that can look like it's somebody being grasped by alien forces from the outside and can even feel like that from sort of like the inside. And then there's this really, really interesting other trope, which is around knowledge, about the young have rejected knowledge. They've rejected knowledge. They just want to trust their instincts. Bernard Quatermass is a science. He's trying to understand what's going on with this. This sort of people getting caught up by this sort of like bigger than individual, super individual agencies. He wants to understand it through science, which of course is like adhering to that, this in some ways, an impersonal, supra-individual methodology, you know, the scientific knowledge, etc. 
there's something there, basically, which also feeds into the cosmic right, this sort of suspicion that science has been corrupted by Big Pharma and all these sorts of things. Okay, monologue over. My main point is this. Um, uh, you should you should take the time to watch Quatermass in the Pit and the Quatermass Conclusion. You can get, catch the other two if you want, but I think they're they're interesting, and Nigel Neal's really interesting. I think. Are you available for hire to do these monologue spoilers at people's parties, Kia? Uh, not only am I uh, uh, available for hire, I will pay someone <laughs> for the privilege. <laughs> it's story. It's the ancient art of storytelling. No, it's fantastic. I love it. Okay, 1960 uh, sees the first of the filming of the John Wyndham books, I think. John Wyndham's a British science fiction writer who wrote two well-known sort of sci-fi horror classics, uh, The Midwitch Cuckoos and The Day of the Triffids. And there are films made of both of those in quite a short succession in the early 60s. So 1960s, Village of the Damned, is based on the Midwich Cuckoos. The Midwich Cuckoos, what happens in the story is that these the children in an idyllic English rural village are taken over by some sort of alien presences, which do just sort of occupy their bodies. I mean, it is it is a sort of possession narrative, really. Everybody in a village falls falls unconscious for a while, and then they wake up after like an hour or something. And then nine months later, all the women, but basically all the women are then suddenly pregnant. And nine months later, everybody gives birth to babies. And they all have blonde hair. I think that's the only thing that links them. (laughs) Blonde hair and quite um, emotionless personas. That'll be a male scriptwriter then, as with (laughs) a lot of these alien films. Carry on. I to believe John Wyndham was uh, male. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some good bits actually in that about like suspicions around... um, infidelity and all that sort of stuff which you, you could imagine but all, all of these kids have got blonde hair they look freaky once again it's one of these like low budget things if you just have like a, the aliens are actually look like humans well that's going to save you a bit of money on the old special effects etc but it is incredibly eerie film actually they're psychic and they can talk to each other they seem to have some sort of hive mind and they have like psychic abilities where they can like control other people and cause things to happen etc um it's sort of an interesting film, as in, like, basically, they're just sort of trying to protect themselves. And eventually, they're killed by somebody that they trust who smuggles a bomb into their house. And in order to not have his mind be read, he has to think about a brick wall. And there's these lines where they're going, John, why are you thinking about a brick wall? Are you trying to hide something from us? My good God, you've got a bomb. And he blows them all up. Seems very unfair, really, because they're just trying to protect themselves and stop themselves being destroyed by the adults. Once again, though, this is sort of like a bit of a generational tension. That seems to be the thing that's animating this this film is generational tension and that the the the, the fear that what about if your children reject you and become uh, independent of you and uh, but also they're much more powerful. I mean, it is like a sort of parable for the next generation being much more at home in a in a completely differently mediated and technologized environment. It's really like that, I think, is that the the children, yeah, the children have all these psychic powers and this ability to communicate with each other te- telepathically and to exercise forms of mind control over people. So, 
it is like the fear of a generation that's had so many advantages and has so and is so much more at home in a, in a radically transformed world that they appear to be alien species and 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 to have superpowers. I mean, that's really they do have superpowers. Basically, it's an interesting attempt to rethink like what would an alien invasion look like? It's it's interesting. It's happening. He's writing it just at the same time as Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He write he writes the book. I think in the year that Body Snatchers comes out, it's published in fifty seven, and it's partly just trying to think through in a speculative sense. Well, if there are truly alien types of being. And maybe they're not even going to have physical bodies in the way we imagine them. Or maybe they're going to implant themselves in human embryos. Or maybe they're going to mind meld with humans in some way. And that's the form that the invasion's going to take. So it's partly playing around with these tropes, both of invasion fear, but also asking the question as to, well, what would alienness really be like? And I think that is a consistent theme for the rest of the rest of the films and programs we're going to be look at, looking at, some of the more interesting ones anyway. It's really trying to get to grips with this idea of the alien. A, the alien, you know, as an adjective, meaning the thing that is very other, that is very different from the human, has different kinds of motivations and is quite inscrutable. But of course, one of the assumptions underlying Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Midwitch Cuckoos is that one of the definitive features of, of humanness is complete individuality, is separation from other members of your species. Because what all of these scary, terrifying aliens have in common is some kind of telepathy, some kind of ability to act perfectly collectively. That's what the pod people do. That's what the Midwitch Cuckoo children do. So I would say it is very much a product of this mid-20th century liberal reaction to the rise of socialism, social democracy, fascism, authoritarian conservatism. It all provokes this kind of liberal panic. And it's the thing that defines the alien always. is The alien is not a proper individual like a human is. I'd say, in fact, I will mention a film. I thought I was going to skip over it, but the 1958 American film, sci-fi horror film, The Blob, which is really just a kind of schlocky teen, you know, fright feature. But it 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 has this kind of very memorable image that the alien creature that comes from outer space on an asteroid or something and end up eating loads of people in some American town before it's eventually captured by the military and frozen in ice. It's just literally, it is just a blob. It's just a giant mass of matter where it starts off as a little blob of slime that then sort of, when it makes contact with one person's body or an animal's body, it can consume it and then it gets bigger each time. It's absolutely this fear of being absorbed in the mass, of being completely absorbed by the undifferentiated mass which you can sort of, it definitely has been theorised in psychoanalytic terms as representing the kind of patriarchal terror of the maternal womb, absorbing you, reabsorbing you, depriving you of your individuality. But clearly it's also it's also political. It's also a political allegory to do with the fear of absorption into the collective mass and the loss of your pristine individual selfhood. And I guess what's so interesting in some ways about... I don't, again, I know the novel The Midwitch Cuckoos, actually, and I, don't, I never sat down and watched the film Village of the Damned. I've seen just seen parodies of it. But what is really interesting about it is it does sort of ask the question, whether it's intentional or not, well, is it really bad? Is it worse? Wouldn't you rather be one of these telepathic super kids than have to be a boring old human? <laughs> 
there's nothing you can do to stop us. Leave us alone. So we're going to skip over two things we could have talked about. The, the great 60s science fiction shows, Doctor Who and Star Trek, which because they are, I think they are doing something very different, which is depicting aliens, but depicting them really as humans uh, for a very different kind of narrative purpose. And instead, the next thing we are going to talk about is I would say it is the classic film of all time, really, which tries to meditate upon what it might mean for humans to encounter an intelligence which is completely non-human, which is which is completely other, completely alien. And that is uh, the classic uh, Tarkovsky film, Solaris. Keir, I think you should try to summarise Solaris. I failed to rewatch Solaris, so I'll let me see if I can recreate the story. I mean, the basic story is this: is that like this scientist is sent out to join a spaceship which is orbiting around this this sort of planet, which seems to be the planet just seems to be like one whole big sea or something like that. And he's sent out there because the people, um, the the people on the spaceship, the scientists who are already there, who's supposed to be studying this planet, are having these really weird experiences, basically. And he goes out there. Basically, the, the the thing I can remember is that he starts to see visitations from his dead wife, and that's what people are, are experiencing. They're, they're experiencing people from their memories, people who are gone, re-emerging in like real physical shape, basically, not just like a, a fantasy, etc. Now, you recount the, the scenes you remember, Jem. Well, a lot of it is just it's it's these sort of it's these scenes where the characters are encountering ghosts from their past and 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 gradually it's hypothesized in the film that what's going on is that somehow the planet itself is a sort of alien entity or or some kind of alien entity on the planet is somehow reconstructing these characters these specters from their own memories but why it's doing that is never explained. The implication seems to be that Solaris, the planet stroke entity, is attempting to communicate somehow through this borrowing of images from the from the memories, from the brain waves of the characters, and projecting them to them. But it's never really explained. The mood becomes increasingly dark as the film goes on, and then it finishes on this very ambiguous. No, it's not really clear whether the the initial character has is back at home or whether he's just experiencing some permanent hallucination of being back at home that's been created by Solaris. So it's very mysterious. It, it's it is a work of experimental cinema as well as a work of science fiction. Like, so one of the interpretations you can give to that is that like the what the planet is trying to do is to give people what they what they think they might want. I once again to to reencounter uh, people who they've lost, etc. You might give that interpretation because Tarkovsky's other really famous film, Stalker, in which there, there's this zone basically in which alien visitations have happened and alien artifacts are there, and you have these people who go into the zone, etc. And right in the middle of the zone is this space which will give you whatever you desire. And so the, the interpretation of that is that like when he re, the scientist re-encounters his wife, first of all, he thinks it's glorious, but then like you know, it becomes horrific. I think he ends up killing his wife and then she appears the next day. So it's that thing of like, you know, people have interpreted it in that way or it, in that like, you know, you 
actually fulfilling your desires could be a horrific thing, basically. You, know, you don't actually want that. What you want is the desire of the, you know, you want the affect of desire rather than the fulfillment of your desires. That sounds like a Zizekian point, that. So Interesting. I just put that little warning in there. Yeah. Well, either way, it's a really, it's a really fascinating piece of cinema. And it, it, it is widely regarded. It's, it, it's always on those lists of the, like, the hundred best films ever made. And it is very, it's a very kind of haunting piece of cinema. Yeah, unfortunately, I spent all my time watching the Quater Mass films rather than the, <laughs> the, the Quater Cinema <laughs> sci-fi film. <laughs> all right. So next film we're going to talk about is, is, is 1977 Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Steven Spielberg's first of two, really. Uh, very optimistic alien contact films. I mean, both Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then E.T. five years later are films about the idea that the aliens in flying saucers are basically benevolent or at least meaning us no harm. And any contact we might have with them would be a nice thing. I mean, Close Encounters, it comes from some terminology which comes out of ufology, according to which you know, the the first kind of encounter is just a UFO sighting and the second kind, I can't remember what it is, and the third kind is that you actually meet aliens. And fourth kind is you're abducted and probed. <laughs> yeah. But the actual the actual encounter with the aliens only happens right at the end of the film when the flying saucer, which lands somewhere in Arizona or New Mexico, uh, opens up and you see and you get the jingle you get the jingle you get the jingle which if anyone who grows up in the 80s you know that's a big big thing. sing the jingle nadia like you know i've been trying to remember it for the last five minutes i, got, I haven't got it in my head i haven't got the the, the first note da, 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 that's right da, 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 da. yeah yeah got yeah it, got and it. The, so the the idea is that the aliens are making contact with random people all over america by sending that sending that tune into their heads or sending them images of this I- extinct volcano somewhere in the american southwest i think or maybe maybe the rockies where they're going to land and and sort of compelling them to congregate there to meet the aliens when they do land and the at some point i think the military of the security state also starts to understand what's happening so they're there to meet them but there isn't like a confrontation like the film the film ends with the central character of the film being really happy and his family being quite relieved that it turned out he wasn't just going mad Sculpting volcanoes in his mashed potatoes in the famous Yeah, scene. that's right, yeah. So that's Close Encounter of the Third Kind and very much very much part of this little wave of optim- very optimistic kind of post-countercultural uh, visions of, of aliens, which, uh, have a, which are also hugely popular. I mean, Close Encounters are a big film, sort of comes out at the same time as Star Wars. I mean, now everybody remembers Star Wars more because the, that franchise became such a big deal. But basically, that was that was the moment when the sci-fi, block, the sci-fi movie, the sci-fi blockbuster movie suddenly became a phenomenon in Hollywood where... For years and years, like the big movies in Hollywood had been these fairly realistic, you know, draw like crime dramas or romantic comedies and things like this. So in terms of cinema history, it's quite it's quite an important moment. But yet, just two years later, nineteen seventy-nine, you get Alien. You get the first strong female lead, I believe, in this sort of film. Yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, no. It, it, Sigourney Weaver is absolutely incredible in uh, in Alien and in the, the 
Aliens, which is from 1982, I think. I can't remember the sequel. After that, you can just forget about it. They lose their way in terms of the series. But if you want an, alt- an antidote to E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, then the alien or xenomorph in Aliens is uh, is your answer to that, basically. It's just this utterly pitiless, perfect, killing, fighting machine, basically. You know, it starts off the the Nostromo, this sort of like this really grubby, dirty sort of of spaceship, um, it, which is hauling something from somewhere. It gets a, a distress signal and goes to a land on this planet. A couple of people get off and start searching around, and they come across this alien spaceship. In this alien spaceship, there's a whole series of these sort of like egg-like pods, etc. Uh, one of them goes and has a look at the pod, which is exactly what you would do, and a alien facehugger jumps out and uh, burns through his his um, his space helmet and grips onto his um, his face basically, and then they take him back to the ship. Um, eventually, the, they try to cut the. The, the the space hugger off, but it's, blood seems to be made of acid or something like that. But eventually, this the face hugger sort of dies and falls off. Uh, everyone thinks it's fine. John Hurt, who's had that face hugger on his face, he um, he sort of ah, oh, that's that's terrible. A really a horrible experience. But you know, now I'm really hungry. Let's go and have dinner. They all gather around and they have their, start having food. And then all of a sudden, John Hurt has the world's worst case of heartburn and an alien burst through his chest in the one of the most famous scenes from cinematic history that alien then scuttles off grows and starts killing all of the the crew of the ship that's the basic story yeah there's been there's been countless psychoanalytic cinema theory interpretations that the the alien is the real like re- the repressed real bursting forth from the body it's the untamable unsymbolizable reality of the horrific physical body it's like the blob it's it's the horrific terrifying maternal feminine like threatening to reabsorb the male ego it's all these things um not not unconvincing any of those analyses, I'd have to say. Or is that like the horror of childbirth? Yes. Know, inflicted on the man or yeah, something like also, that. Also that. It definitely is all those things, I think, to some extent. And it's also really important in the history of cinema, just in terms of basic liberal feminist talking points that indeed Sigourney Weaver playing Ripley, the tough, you know, gun toting action hero, is the the human lead of the film and the main antagonist, finally, of the Xenomorph. I mean, it's a really well-made film. It is one of those films, I, I would say, it's sort of, at least from from my sort of professional point of view, it's more interesting for all the critical commentaries generated than for the film itself, which you, sort of does what you expect it to do, especially once you know what it's going to do. Yeah, it does what you expect it to do now. I think it was quite different in 1979. But Well, yeah, it was a really, um, it's really interesting in, really interesting phenomenon. The other thing to say about that, though, is that there's there's another thing that's going along with it, which is paranoia about corporations. But also the plot, it is, it's an early, I mean, the general mise-en-scene, the general setup of the film, like Blade Runner, is it's an early example of a kind of cyberpunk setup in cinema, in that you're, you're in a universe where apparently the only politically powerful entities now are these interplanetary corporations. The actual plot the actual backstory to the thing 
is this corporation has found this alien entity that anybody could tell you is just really, really dangerous and you should just keep humans away from. But they're hoping to try to find a way to make it controllable and use it as a military technology, to use it as a weapon that they can sell. And the implication in all the Aliens films is that really, like none of these people would be getting their stomachs, you know, burst open or their faces eaten by the aliens if it weren't for the fact that the the corporation is clearly not following correct health and safety procedures. No, it's more it's more than that, actually. So in the, in the first film, so the, the corporation is Wayland Utani. Um, and in the first one, there's an android called Ash. People don't know he's an android because he looks very, very human. And he's been programmed to go and get somebody infected with one of the eggs and bring it back to back to back to Earth. And then in the sequel, Aliens, there's this character Carter Burke who once again is trying to get people to go back to this planet, which has now got settlers on it, etc. And hundreds of aliens all over the place, and a big queen alien, etc. Uh, in order to bring back one of these things so that they can use it for weapons research and that sort of stuff. And it's sort of interesting in that sort of, once again in that, like what does the alien, what does the alien represent? One, one way you could think about capital in its abstract form is as like something like, which is a bit like an inhuman force, do you know what I mean? Which infects people. It, it infects people's motivations, such as Carter Burke. All of a sudden he starts to behave like this pitiless, agent devoid of compassion etc purposely trying to get a, ch- a young child infected with this egg do you know what i mean so you could sort of see capital as like this inhuman force which parasites on humans and makes them act according to its own motivations which is its motivation is to grow etc so perhaps it's capital which is the alien it is an alien which doesn't come from outside of course though it is basically an abstract you can isolate it as an abstract dynamic of people's motivations but of course those motivations come from human beings, unfortunately. Next up, we've got The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's film from 1982. Never watched The Thing. I don't, I'm never even clear what it's about. Let me just do a one-minuter on it then. Yeah, so it, basically it's, it's Invasion of the Body Snatches, but set in an Arctic base of complete isolation. And the, the film starts with, like, these Swedish people in a helicopter chasing a dog and trying to shoot a dog from a helicopter. The dog arrives at this Arctic base. The Swedish people, like, land the helicopter, try to shoot the dog. The people are on the base. The Americans on the base try to to stop them shooting the dog. Uh, if you can understand Swedish, the Swedes just tell you the whole plot of the film straight away. That there dog is an alien it can shapeshift and it's going to destroy you all uh, they don't believe it and they end up killing the swede um, and then the alien basically this alien can sort of infect people and then uh, recreate them basically it's got um, amazing practical effects in which people's at one point somebody's trying to give somebody uh, electric shock on their on their heart what do they call those machines defibrillator or something and it goes to give a defibrillator to this person and this whole chest opens up into a mouth which then bites the man's hands off (laughs) it's utterly amazing and then the head of this person who's just done that separates turns into like a spider type sprouts legs and scales up the effects are amazing it's worth it just for that because it's separated there's no getting out there's no outside to it it's just a group of people none of them know which one is an alien um and so the paranoia and the mistrust of anybody around you just absolutely heightened and there's a key scene where where kurt russell is mccready he's the sort of protagonist he gathers everyone together 
and he takes a blood sample from everybody. He knows that the alien it hates heat, so he heats up a bit of wire so it's red hot, and he sticks the wire in the blood sample of everybody. That's the test to see if you're an alien or not. And uh, when he when he reaches the alien, the blood jumps out of the <laughs> jumps out of the petri dish. The person whose blood it was turns into this alien and starts attacking somebody else and eating them, etc. It's an amazing film for that. Basically, it just boils down that whole paranoid. Who is an alien? Are the aliens one of us, etc.? Are you an alien, etc.? It boils it down perfectly, and it ends up with the whole base destroyed. It's the Arctic, so if you're a human, you're going to die at this point. McCready and another another guy, Charles, who's played by Keith David, this really this great black actor who was in They Live later on. The film just ends with them two not knowing which one is an alien. They're both aliens. If none of them are aliens, etc., nothing's resolved. And it's probable that, like, you know, the human's going to die. The alien is going to freeze until somebody else comes to find out what's going on, and then it will infect the Earth and everyone will die. Quite a nihilistic film in that sense. And in that way, quite dissimilar to E.T., which we've already mentioned, which comes out at the same time and is a massive hit. The thing was an absolute box office failure in 1982 is now a cult classic. Going on, Nadia, this you must. I, I was going to say you must have seen ET, e. the extraterrestrial. I mean, I have seen ET. I'm, I'm not sure what there is to say about it analytically, really, other than like it's just a really nice film. It again fits in with that, you know, s- small cadre of like you were saying with Close Encounters, this idea that the extraterrestrial can be a friend or benevolent, and you can have these kind of very cute and wonderful scenes where like the children you know meet the alien and it's all very cute and i just love it as a film you know and i don't know what else to say about it i would say a couple of things one thing is the cute alien puppet trope which et really maximizes as a plot device is basically established by sesame street and the muppets in the 70s which is draws on quite heavily so the cute the idea of the cute big-eyed alien well, we haven't said actually anything about the kind of visual iconography of aliens apart from the tentacled aliens. E.T. is an example, but it's it's already quite a developed trope by this point of presenting aliens as super smooth skin with really big eyes and maybe these kind of domed heads, which is sometimes explained in some films or TV shows as what you expect humans to evolve into when they look even less like gorillas or chimpanzees than humans do. So the, the brain keeps growing, the head keeps getting bigger, the eyes keep getting bigger relative to the rest of the face, the, all the hair comes off the, the body. Of course, uh, reputedly, there's a drawing of an, of an entity that Alistair Crowley claimed to have contacted psychically in the early 20th century, which also looks very like that, very spooky. But E.T. is doing that. But E.T., of course, also, just in terms of cultural and cinematic history, it is E.T., and the huge success of it that establishes Steven Spielberg as the cinema, the filmmaker of American liberal humanism uh, during this period. The thing about E.T. is although he's an alien, he's not at all an alien. He, he manages to learn human language. 
uh, relatively easily. He manages to communicate with a 12-year-old boy. And together they manage to contact uh, E.T.'s friends and family and they come and collect him, having been stranded on Earth momentarily, in their flying saucer. So he's re- although he has psychic powers and advanced technology and looks a bit different, he's not, he's not very alien at all. And this is a sort of extension of Spielberg's general liberal humanist ideology, which at times can serve as an interesting corrective to the savagery of uh, Reaganite and post-Reaganite neoliberal America, and at times can just collapse into a, a cloying and anti-political sentimentality. That The film does both of those things at the same time in, in quite an illustrative way, I think. But also aesthetically, like you were mentioning, like it's a different kind of cute. So he's like in the Yoda kind of grouping of like a wider face. You've still got these big eyes, but it's kind of wrinkly and, you know, wide face rather than 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 long so introduces a different form of alien which is not like you said the cone head type and also not the incredibly scary like you know the alien 1979 well psychologically he looks like a baby i mean it's the whole it's the, yes it, yeah yes, they yes, both yes. look like babies both yoda and which is partly why baby yoda ends up being this kind of hilarious visual tautology because yoda already looks like a baby so like i mean that is the basis for the whole yeah, Japanese kawaii aesthetic, for example. Is, kawaii. Kawaii is, yeah. this, is the psychological truism that humans are sort of evolutionarily programmed to find small creatures with big eyes appealing because they look like babies. So we, have to, we want to protect them and nurture them and, and we trust them. And then what's so incredibly appealing, especially to children, about Yoda and E.T. is that they, they, they are cute like that, but and they are good but they are also psychically superpowered. So what's not to like? I've got a baby Yoda right next to me right now. I'm in an animator's office, so I've got Star Trek and Star Wars baby everything at the moment. I, I do. I mean, <laughs> baby Yoda is a fantastic, fantastic contemporary fictional creation. Grogu, to give it his Yes, Grogu. E.T. Phone Home. There's this science fiction mini series that was shown in the States, and I think it was also shown in the UK. It came out in 1983 initially, and it's called V. And it is an alien invasion story. And the distinctive trope is that the aliens who come to Earth, the V is like it's for visitors, they who initially are claiming to be like friendly and they want to help us and give us new technology. And actually, they want to take over the world and eat us. And they are actually reptilian humanoids, but they have the capacity to disguise themselves to look like humans. And I don't know if the conspiracy theory paranoid trope of of actually there being a race of reptilian beings that are able to disguise themselves as humans and occupy positions of authority in you know the world bank the wto and the american federal government i don't know if that uh, predates that show in any way or if that is where it actually comes from um, it, it may predate it but it definitely was it was only like became a uh, a famous thing or, a, or something people knew about way after that, I think, in the early 90s. 
Yeah. So it has. So it's kind of extraordinary, and it is. It is one of those things that I've. I have spoken to people in my life who claimed to have realised through their DMT experiences that the the reptilians really are real. And the thing I couldn't quite get past was that you realise that's a, that's a thing from like a, a cheap mini series from the early eighties. Like what? Like what? How can you take it seriously when it's when it's that's it, its visual origin point? But there you go. That is the impact that it has had on the uh, global cultural imaginary. Talking about reptilian aliens who can describe themselves, disguise themselves as humans, let's talk about 1987's They Live, once again, by John Carpenter. One of my favourite films, actually, even though the film is actually not a particularly great film. Well, it's crudely made, but it's conceptually and politically very ambitious. So John Carpenter made it as his anti-Reaganite film, basically. It's anti-Reagan film. And let's just cut to the main part of it. What happens is this guy, Nada, nothing, nobody, arrives as a drifter, arrives in town. He sees uh, this camps of homeless people that get cleared by these like riot cops, etc. He sees some people going into a church and running off, etc. He goes in the church and he finds a big box of sunglasses. They look like nice sunglasses, he says. He puts them on. <laughs> Every time he puts these sunglasses on, Whenever he looks at an advert, advert, that advert changes from, you know, advertising a holiday to saying obey or something like that. Consume, <laughs> right? He looks at, um, he gets at a dollar bill. He looks at that with his sunglasses. It says, this is your God. Um, and he realizes that, in fact, all of this stuff around him is sending him subliminal messages to just to, to obey, to be passive, etc., to treat money as your God and all that sort of stuff. He looks somewhere else with his sunglasses. When he takes the sunglasses off, it's just a normal sort of yuppie guy. When he puts them on, it's a reptilian alien. They're like anti-ideology sunglasses, as um, as Zizek would puts it in in his commentary on it. The other famous famous scene is that like Nada is played by a very famous American wrestler called Roddy Piper. That's the one, Roddy Piper, um, and he ends up having this eight-minute fight with Keith David, who was also in the thing trying to make him put on the glasses. He says, put these glasses on. He says, no, I'm not putting the glasses on. And they have this incredible sort of like world, worldwide wrestling sort of fight where he's trying to force the, the sunglasses on him. He finally forces them on and he looks around and says, oh my God, I can see all these signs saying obey and all that sort of stuff. And like Zizek interprets that as like, you know, basically seeing through ideology, um, that is the painful bit. Wait, he, does, does Zizek think that's what, what the film's about? That's a controversial <laughs> to lose your ideology is incredibly painful um, that's my Zizek impression um, and so basically what's going on in this is that like the richer aliens not all of the rich are some of them are humans who are in cahoots with the aliens in order to keep the good american working man down except some of the police are aliens etc some of them are just dupes all these sorts of things Luckily, ideology is not built into our very structures of our lives. Luckily, ideology has been beamed from a big aerial from top of a building. So all you need to do to, to ferment revolution is to go in there with guns blazing, blow up that aerial, and ideology will cease. And if that's not a prescription for 21st century revolution, I don't know what is. I mean, it's an extraordinary film. It's, just, it's extraordinary that it got made and released at that time. It's part of this 
this late 80s American radical moment that I'm increasingly interested in. I talked about I talked about this when we had the folk, I did the folk music episode and I was reminded of it because of everybody getting excited by Tracy Chapman appearing on at the Grammys this week. There is this moment of American culture around the time of that final Jesse Jackson bid for the Democratic nomination where really, I mean, explicitly revolutionary content is kind of bursting out into mainstream culture. I I would say as a kind of a final echo of the radicalism of the 70s before it gets completely suppressed in around 92, 93. But it's really... It's funny that it's not really, it's not something people think about. Nobody thinks, oh yeah, in America in the late 80s, it was like there was this moment of radicalism, but it was, it was like the Spike Lee Malcolm X film being a big hit around 1990 and stuff. And it's sort of nobody remembers it now. Everybody remembers fucking grunge. All right, let's talk about The X-Files. Okay, The X-Files, well, uh, a TV series, an iconic now TV series, which sort of combines uh, a a now very well-established alien invasion narrative with conspiracy theory and the growing sense of paranoia generated by people's relationship to the federal government in the states and the security services i mean the what underlies the the kind of meta narrative of the x-files is this idea that there's this grand plot according to which uh, key figures in government have been in contact with an alien race for years uh, the aliens are planning to basically invade earth to create some sort of uh, new race of hybrid a- human aliens to enslave the rest of humanity and they are convinced that absolutely nothing can be done about it so they ha- they are colluding with them because they are convinced that the aliens are are, are ultimately unstoppable unbeatable I mean, there's all this other stuff in the X-Files as well, like ghosts and other paranormal stuff. But that's that becomes the meta plot and it becomes the plot of the X-Files movie when it finally gets released later in the 90s. And I think it is an interesting now to think about that as a sort of parable, actually, for the complete capitulation of like the American political class in the face of the end of the Cold War, like the final defeat of the New Deal, the sense under Clinton that there was never going to be any going back to a meaningfully progressive and reformist agenda for American liberalism. These members of the political elite who, even though they don't like the aliens really, they they believe them to be totally undefeatable and are therefore colluding with them to enslave the rest of humanity. It's a pretty good allegory for the the world, the Clinton, you know, what the Clinton administration is doing at, at that moment in history. And has a great jingle. Yeah. <laughs> do, 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 do. Something like that. That's probably out of tune. Purely with a TV critic hat on, it was a very disappointing successor to Twin Peaks because that was sort of how it was positioned initially in the TV marketplace. It was the, it was the new weird TV show after the a perceived success of David Lynch's Twin Peaks show. And like Twin Peaks, it it mixed up elements of the supernatural and horror with with science fiction and with sort of conspiracy narratives. But it just it does it in so much less kind of weird a way than Lynch. And it and in a way I always felt like the the fact that the 
it it wasn't clear what kind of big meta plot they were going to settle on in the end and in the end like it was the most boring one it was like the most predictable the most prosaic the most boring thing oh aliens are coming to eat us and enslave us it's just it's just war of the worlds basically whereas david with twin peaks is like oh well the fbi have like figured out there there are actually other dimensions with evil spirits in them and they're engaged in some weird kind of combat with them or are they have are some of them in line with the evils in in league with the evil spirits it's so much weirder and more imaginative i sort of felt like the x-files was really it was really disappointing when that was what they landed on finally as their conclusive metaphor I mean, the other film that you could put alongside that is like Men in Black. So Men in Black is only really interesting. It's sort of like a comedy film and a series of films in which aliens are living amongst us, mostly in New York. They're, they're mostly benign and like disguised as humans, some some thinly disguised as humans. It's one of the jokes, you know, people in New York are so weird, you can't tell. You know, aliens can fit in quite nicely, etc. Every now and then there's a there's some evil aliens who are out to do bad, and there's a secret society called the Men in Black who are out to, to sort it out, basically. And, of course, the Men in Black, it comes out of UFO conspiracism from the 1950s onwards, I think. It's this idea that when there's a, if there's an alien abduction, like Men in Black, presumably the FBI, turn up and, you know do things such as erase your memory, which is one of the things the Men in Black film does. They won't let you remember. That's the funny line, yeah. They won't let you remember. That's a fantastic line. It's like the musicals episode, isn't it? The sort of image I'm trying to make is that like, this is sort of like a relatively benign form of conspiracism, which takes a darker turn after after 2001 with 9-11. And then it becomes incredibly dark by the time you get to the 2010s, etc. From that point of view, the night the the X Files like nineteen ninety eight movie does sort of prefigure that very dark turn in, in conspiracy theory. Yeah, that's I think that's right. The thing between Peaks is they are ba- the FBI are basically benign. Like they are doing this secret shit, like this of like you know involving like black magic and stuff. But basically, they're on the side of good. Whereas in the X Files movie, they are yeah they're not the X Files movie. The secu- the the deep state is colluding with the aliens to enslave humanity although Mulder and Scully are FBI as well aren't they so. well they are yeah but they but they're sort of this is rogue FBI I mean well they're sort of they're, right, yeah. they're constantly having to work against the machinations of the I mean the idea is that there's there are these different factions within the FBI and within the security state and there are still some good factions <laughs> Okay, so apart from the fact that, as you guys know, and listeners probably know by now, I'm not that into space and sci-fi stories and culture, way more important for this episode was that I've been doing some research trying to disprove my thesis that an interest in alien storytelling is overwhelmingly by Anglo-Americans or colonizer countries. So it could be South Africa or Australia, New Zealand as well. I'm not just saying there, like Britain, US, etc. right? And it's not just an expression of the other coming to take over the Western world as some kind of retribution for colonialism. And that in 20th and 21st century, I think most of the global South is preoccupied with actual liberation from colonialism, 
or kind of new military or economic war, as is being experienced now, to be preoccupied by this metaphorical invader in their storytelling. So I'm trying to disprove this, right? Because this is a theory I've got. So how does Global South cinema do aliens specifically was my question. And right, so there might be many more and listeners do let us know, you know, do, do, do tweet at us or whatever and tell us what those films are. But this brought me to one film, which I deliberately only watched half of last night, so as not to provide spoilers of the Kia Milburn type. Um, and that is The Host, the 2006 South Korean film directed by the fantastic Bung Joon-hoo, director of one of my favorite films of all time, Parasite. So if you liked Parasite, go watch his earlier film. It's very satiating for me to watch because from the get-go, it's the American's fault which you know, which makes a nice change in this genre. But basically, the, the basic plot line is that, you know, there's careless Americans, American personnel who are responsible for these chemicals getting into South Korea's Han River. And then this creature emerges from the tainted waters, right? And then starts attacking local residents. And, you know, one of the, the main character's daughters is abducted. And then they try and save her. Apart from the fact that it's it's like the the way the film is directed is amazing because uh, Bung Jun Ho is such a fantastic director, and you can see how it relates to Parasite later. So I'll be interested for you guys to watch it if you if you haven't. What's great about it is it is an alien, like it's an actual alien form in the kind of same alien aesthetic as like the 1979 so it's actually quite scary but it's also quite a funny movie but it's a really good film as a commentary on basically justice and class as well so I loved it because I felt like it was doing several things at the same time I have not finished it so I don't know how the film ends but I thought it was a great film to watch let me tell you the ending that yeah I love that (laughs) (laughs) don't do it Kia no, 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 I won't, I won't. It is, it's a great film, though, in in that you, you basically don't know what sort of genre of film you're watching half the time. It's just, it, it goes from, like, comedy to sort of, like, gritty gritty sort of, like, class commentary to alien film. It's, it's unclear if it is an alien, actually, isn't it? Because it's sort of, like... Isn't it like pollution? It, yeah, so it's so it's that story which you've got in, you know, like you've got various 1990s games has this kind of theme. It's kind of like that cross between alien and kind of radioactive monster comes out of the swamp kind of vibe. But it is very alien looking. So for anyone who would be aware of kind of Western culture, like bad alien, scary alien, this is very reminiscent of it. And it's kind of very scary. But as you said, the film is also quite funny, but there is a a relative amount of gore in it. And, you know, loads of people dying. In that way, it's sort of a little bit similar to like the kaiju films, which are, you know, the Godzilla films from Japan in the 1950s and onwards, like Mothra and all these sorts of things, which were People have always interpreted them as a, as a reaction to like Hiroshima, basically, and the destruction of a city. I think Godzilla in the original one is awoken. It, it's not an alien; he's some an ancient beast which is awoken by nuclear explosions or something. And he comes and destroys destroys cities and all these sorts of things. It's a, sim, a little bit similar similar to that in, in that sort of way. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing for me here is again that kind of global south angle of like. What what is what is the political message of the film? And it's it's just interesting that straight off it's like it's the American military, like they fucked up. 
if that's the theme, it's still with most of the other, you know, Anglo-American films, it's still like it's just very, very Anglo-centric in that way. Is that there's even an Agent Yellow as a chemical that it's, that's used in there, which is obviously a reference to Agent Orange, which is used to defoliate Vietnam during the Vietnam War, etc. Um, could I talk about Cloverfield? Because it's a very nice link, actually. Cloverfield from 2008, so like two years after The Host, is in fact a, it's like a Kaijo film, which I think is is produced in reaction to 9-11. It's like a found footage format. So it presents itself as like found footage from a video that people were recording during, first of all, a party and then this sort of alien attack, basically. And it's definitely a post 9-11 film as it's set in Manhattan. It's got buildings collapsing, people ducking into shops to avoid this rolling cloud of debris and dust, etc., which is like one of the famous clips from uh, from 9-11. But instead of, you know, a, a terrorist attack, this is this huge alien, basically which is destroying Manhattan and all that sort of stuff. Really like a, like a Godzilla analogy. And like, basically I think it is, it's serving the sort of same role of like, you know, working through the, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki for, for Godzilla and like that, the rest of that kaiju genre. But with Cloverfield, it's working through 9-11. A very good film. One we should definitely talk about is District 9 from 2009, a South African film. Have either of you just seen District 9? No, I, sh- I should have done nope. it, but I haven't. In some ways, it's like Aliens as Refugees. And, and it, in fact, the film starts off with like a sort of found footage documentary format sort of style, basically. So a documentary f- crew are following around this guy, Wickers, who's like this sort of policeman, civil servant type. Uh, they follow him around on a day. And basically what the conceit of the film is that 10 years ago, I think it's 10 years, something like that. 10 years ago, after before this documentary is made, this huge alien ship suddenly arrives over Johannesburg and then just sits there and does nothing. And then eventually the South African government sort of get, goes up to it, cuts into the ship, and they discover like a million aliens in there, all like in a really bad way, really badly mal- malnourished, seemingly unable to like help themselves, etc., the, the aliens are brought down to Earth and are like housed in this slum called District Nine, which is all sort of like surrounded, etc. The weird thing is they're obviously they're obviously technologically advanced, these aliens, but the aliens that are around just seem utterly helpless, basically, unable to work the technology or barely able to work it, you know, really listless, not to really know what to do, etc. That sort of stuff. Perhaps it's something like this that it's not clear, but like in interviews and like in the film, it, it seems to be that like perhaps. What, what what's happened is that like the this is some sort of they, these are like the drones or the or the soldier sort of aliens and probably there was some sort of leader alien who would give direction and that leader alien died and so perhaps the the aliens just basically stopped doing anything started to die and the ships sort of detected that and came to somewhere where it could get food etc. These aliens are like helpless, sort of being very powerful beings, but like helpless and like aimless and all that sort of stuff. There are lots of resentment builds up around the aliens because, you know, we have to look after these aliens. And then it's decided that District 9 is going to be cleared of aliens and the aliens are going to be moved to a new camp outside of town. That is based on like an actual incident during apartheid in 1966 where District 6, which is in Johannesburg, got declared it was a white-only area and all black South Africans were evicted to, to Cape Flats, which is like a sort of slum 
area and really horrendous ground in which is like one road in one road out so that you can contain it sort of thing that sort of thing so it's absolutely a reference to apartheid etc the story of the film goes on that wickers this guy who's like the star of the documentary he starts to like you know force the aliens out they're just shooting aliens down killing them etc forcing them out trying to get them to, to to move and he gets sprayed by this sort of black material and starts to turn into an alien and then two of the aliens seem to be different to the others and they've been collecting up this black oily substance as some sort of fuel in order to return to the mothership in order to go go back and bring help basically something like that the story sort of follows wickers turning into an alien we're not really sure what's gone on with that perhaps like all of the aliens who are the drones perhaps they were all sort of like you know they were all other species at one point have been turned into these alien drones perhaps it's like a slave society they've been turned into these aliens by this black material we don't know exactly what goes on with that sort of stuff it's a really interesting film anyway, really well filmed, obvious sort of reference to working through of like apartheid, but also working through of quite vicious anti-immigrant sentiment in contemporary South Africa, where Nigerians in particular are discriminated against, etc., and forced into like criminality and all these sorts of stuff. Uh, I'd recommend watching it. Right. And I, I've discovered that there is a film, apparently, called Sector Zero. I've watched this trailer for it. It's a Nollywood film, i.e., for those of you who, who don't know listeners, Nigeria has a real massive film industry. And it's so it's a 2018 film from Nigeria called Sector Zero that apparently has a very similar plot to District 9, but I can't find it anywhere to watch it. All I can find is the trailers. That's interesting, actually, because one of the controversial bits in it is that there are, the film in District 9 features Nigerian criminal gangs who just behave like totally as though they're not humans. Could be a response film. Yeah, maybe it's a response, but if, if there are any listeners um, who have watched it, please let us know. <laughs> Where there's a slum, there's crime. And District 9 was no exception. The TV show The Expanse is worth mentioning. It's a really interesting sci-fi series. It finished a year or two ago. It started around 2016. It's based on a series of books that were themselves originally based on a role-playing game campaign. I think it was some, yeah, some science fiction D20 game they were playing. And what's interesting about it from our point of view is The Expanse is a really, in terms of stuff we talked about on the UFO episode, actually, The Expanse is a really clear example of someone trying to come up with an alien contact and eventually an interstellar travel themed science fiction concept, but without the idea that humans are going to invent faster than light travel. So mostly it takes place in an imagined future in which humans are colonizing the solar system they're building like artificial colonies and maybe colonies around the moons of jupiter or something but they're not they're nowhere close to interstellar space and there hasn't been any alien contact and then they do come into contact with what seems to be some ancient alien technology which takes on the form of what's referred to as the proto-molecule, which is some kind of nanotechnological substance. It appears to be able to somehow connect with the consciousness of humans, and there's a lot that's borrowed directly from Solaris, actually. It apparently recreates the the, the consciousness of people who've, who've died or things like this. And eventually as well, eventually later on in the series... They create effectively a sort of stargate through the activation of what appears to be some very ancient alien technology. 
Cromwell apparently lost alien technology, which then allows them to explore another solar system through this interdimensional portal. So it's pretty interesting. It's also it's a really interesting show politically because it's written from this quite explicitly leftist perspective. And a lot of it has nothing to do with any of this alien stuff I'm talking about. A lot of it has to do with just imagining a kind of anti-colonial struggle on the part of these oppressed uh, people who live out far out in the solar system and constitute a sort of interplanetary working class. And there's a lot that's borrowed, actually, from, from people like Kim Stanley Robinson, for example, there's this explicit nod to the idea of Mars having become a, a sort of socialist planet. So it's definitely of interest to ACFM listeners and pretty entertaining. It's also it's got it, it's sort of like it's hard sci-fi. So it's sort of it's one of the few science fiction space travel stories which take sort of things like momentum and acceleration and these sorts of things very seriously. Which is why you know you have to have a Deus Ex Machina in order to introduce interstellar travel etc to expand beyond the solar system but the only other the other interesting thing to say is that um the aliens have gone yeah this alien probe or whatever it was was launched however many millions billions years ago or perhaps it's been there for a while i can't remember but basically you know who knows when it got launched it took a long time to go there and in the meantime the aliens have disappeared seems to have been killed off by something else which is mysterious all that is left quite mysterious and it, it seems to be the magical technology which is sort of the plot the, the repeatedly indeed arbitrary plot device the proto molecule it's basically like an imaginary mixture of like nanotechnology and ai it's as if some sort of thing has been created that combines a quantum computing ai with a super constructive nanotechnology so it's very much, I mean, it's completely typical. It's classic sci-fi, really. It's taking a lot of contemporary themes in speculative science and turning, weaving a story out of them, but also to some extent using that as dressing for what is basically a sort of anti-colonial, anti-capitalist political narrative. May I ask you something? Do you miss Earth? These endless blue skies. Free air everywhere and open water all the way to the horizon. The Arrival was a movie based on a short story by Ted Chiang. And Ted Chiang is a great contemporary American writer of speculative fiction, one of the best, uh, and one of those people who get who has been ripped off a bit by a number of other writers i would say it's called the story of your life and it's published in 1998 and it, it imagines an encounter between earth scientists and an alien civilization and it all it, and it really deals with the question of well, how would they be able to communicate with each other and the basic conceit of the story is that in the process of learning to effectively speak the alien language the expert neurolinguist who is the main protagonist of the story completely changes her own consciousness to the point where she's sort of able to perceive different dimensions. I'm really oversimplifying here. And, and that is the theme. And then the, what happens in the story is basically, despite being able to, to some extent, communicate with the aliens, they are simply never able to figure out why the aliens have come to our solar system what it is they want, if anything, if they're just observing us for some scientific purpose, and then they leave, and then that's it. A bit like Solaris, a bit like what's going on slightly in The Expanse, a bit like some of these other stories, it's an attempt to really confront in narrative terms, like, well, what would it mean to really encounter a completely non-human consciousness? Like, what would happen? 
Well, like, so the film is slightly different, actually. So there's a purpose for their arrival. The purpose is explained. And so basically in the film, like these 12 huge ships turn up and sort of hover all around the world, basically. And there are these sort of like octopus aliens there who, who you're separated from because they're in a, sort of, they need a different gaseous atmosphere. And this scientist starts to work out what's going on. I think the first message that's just translated is something. It contains the word which gets misinterpreted as weapon. And so lots of people get very suspicious that it's an invasion. And in fact, but that weapon also means tool. The tool that they're here to present is their language, which when you understand the language, it'll help you have a different perception of time. And so the scientist starts to starts to have these sorts of more than remembrances of like recurrences of her dead daughter, basically. Oh, no, no, I think it's her daughter to come, that her daughter, she's going to have a daughter, and then the daughter's going to die. And she starts to live through this future events, basically. Yes, yes, so this, that, that all happens in the story, that stuff. And so at the end, basically, what they come to understand is that in 3,000 years' time, these aliens will need the intervention of humankind. So they've come here in order to give them this tool of this new language so that they can perceive time differently and they'll be ready to help them in 3,000 years' time. In terms of the themes of the story, yeah, that's quite nice. It, that does sort of fit with the basic themes of the original story. Yeah. But it is an interesting film because like, most of it is, is based around that problem of how do you learn a language from which you know nothing. Okay, so what, what's the final film you want to talk about? I think we should talk about Nope, which is Jordan Peele's third film from 2022. Have you seen Nope? No, I haven't, no. Well, the answer to that is nope. <laughs> I think nope is sort of like stands for not of planet Earth. I think that is. I don't think I've made it. <laughs> anyway, so it's Jordan Peele's third film. His first film is Get Out, which is loosely around race. His second film is Us, which is loosely around class, I would say. And nope is something different. It seems to revolve around this idea of spectacles or the spectacle. The film starts with the first ever moving image, which is a horse being ridden by a black jockey. And Moybridge set up a whole series of cameras with like strings attached to them. And when the horse ran past it, they triggered each camera. It's just the first moving image. Uh, and then it comes with a, a, the, the next thing you see is like an opening epigraph from the Bible, which says, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. So that sort of sets it up. The story is based... This is full spoilers, obviously. The story is based mainly at this ranch, which is run by this black family... The father of this family dies very early on in the film, so it's mainly this OJ and his sister M, and they train or wrangle horses. So they train horses to appear in films, basically. That's the idea. Obviously, it's a dying industry. They're being replaced by CGI, etc. They see a, what they think is a flying saucer in the sky, and this flying saucer seems to be abducting their horses. Eventually, they work out that it's not a flying saucer which contains aliens, what they think is a flying saucer is actually just the alien. And it's not abducting horses or humans to, to probe them. It's a predator and it's just eating them. So their response when they work it, work this out is that they want to try and film the alien in order to sell the footage, to get the Oprah shot, as they call it. They want to get the footage and then turn the alien into a spectacle, basically. It's a problem with that, which is that when the alien appears, all electrical currents don't stop working. So they try to film it, it doesn't work, etc. The other part of the story is uh, the other person who's interacting with this alien is a character called Jupe, who runs a, a theme park close by and has been buying horses from the, the wrangling farm in order to sort of feed the alien. 
and then charge people to come sit around and, and look at the spectacle. So it's another spectacle thing. Dupe, when he was a child, was in a, a, a sitcom which ended because the chimpanzee Gordy, in the sit- who was also a star of the sitcom, basically went on a rampage and killed a lot of the crew. He didn't attack Dupe, though, because Dupe was hiding under a, under a chimpan under a table, and his eyes were covered by a cl- by a tablecloth. So he he wasn't looking into the eyes of Gordy, so Gordy didn't the chimpanzee didn't see him as a threat, and that becomes this this important theme because OJ later on recognizes that if you don't look at the alien, it won't attack you basically. Um, and so there's this thing set up where they're trying to, turn, everyone's trying to look at this alien to turn it to a spectacle. But if you look at it, it'll kill you, basically. <laughs> it's the sort of thing. So it's all around, like, who gets to be seen? What On what basis do you get to be seen, etc.? Who gets to be not seen? What the conditions are being viewed? All that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a, a, a scene where somebody from TMZ, which is like a, a website where they show sort of like shocking images, etc., turns up on a motorbike and the alien attacks him and he get you know he falls off his bike, etc. And he turns to OJ and says, Why aren't you filming this? Film this quick. And then he gets killed, etc. So it's sort of that wanting to film everything, etc. It's like the spectacle of a car crash, I think, is the way you would put it. It's not a sort of situationist idea of the spectacle from Guy Debord's like Society of the Spectacle. It's not quite that. It's more that showing horrific images or showing unusual, shocking things in order probably to distract us, basically. Distract us from, like, the, the ongoing car crash of contemporary society. No. No, no, please. Please, no. Out, shut your no. Shut your eye. Not before you take a picture. Ah, take a picture first. It seems like the themes are pretty consistent, really. It seems like, really, since those early, earliest instances, like War of the Worlds and The Day the Earth Stood Still, these are recurrent themes. Aliens might be angels or they might be monsters. Maybe what changes a little bit from sort of Tarkovsky onwards is this this insistent question, what would the truly alien be like? And would it be scary? Would it be wonderful? Would it be unknowable? What would its motivations be? Mm. I think there's also probably another sort of reading, which is there's something around agency there and about the forces that condition agency and whether we figure them as like alien forces, et cetera. There's something there with that, I think. So like that could be our psychological forces or like big social historical forces, which I suppose is inevitable if we're watching these films and trying to think about how they fit into society and the concerns contemporaneous to them. In the Quatermass thing where like he moves from aliens are out there to like we are the aliens basically and our motivations are controlled by the aliens or produced by the aliens. So there's a movement from the outside to the inside in, in that, which you can sort of see perhaps in things, even things such as Nope, where you're trying to think about, you know, what's causing our obsession with with spectacle. Does it just act as an escapism? These sorts of these sorts of things. Obviously, that's there's a certain irony in that because Nope was a big blockbuster film, of course. I'm sure it's a, it's a knowing irony. And of course, all of these films are big spectacles, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks for listening, everyone. We're going to beam up now. Keep watching the skies. This is Ashley.